when we talk about God, I think there's a couple of questions that always come to the surface. Questions that, that, that press in on us and require good answers. I think these questions are true regardless of who you are, whether you're a believer or a skeptic, a doubter, someone who considers themselves on the fence. There are certain questions that are persistent in our conversations about God. And maybe those are even the reasons you consider yourself a doubter or a skeptic. And I think chief among those difficult questions about God is the question of whether or not God is good. And I think honestly, this question exists and persists in people's minds and hearts for a lot of really good reasons. History has borne witness to certain tragic and horrific events that have been done in the name of God. And as we engage with him in his story, there are some moments that call into question his goodness. Noted atheist and philosopher Richard Dawkins puts this into strong words in one of his most famous lectures, saying, The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. Dawkins' words are intense, but I think they actually represent the views of a lot of people, both people who consider themselves believers and people who don't, whether or not they're inside the church or not, people have encountered this character and walked away feeling like he has malevolent intentions. And the question is why? Now, I think there's a lot of reasons that people like Dawkins and others would cite that calls into question God's goodness. But I think above all of them is the issue of hell. Now, I don't know how you envision hell, but I think a lot of us See it as this underground torture chamber where God sends billions of people who don't agree with him, who don't decide to do life the way that he wants them to, who don't keep his laws. Maybe your pictures come from different movies, but normally it implies fire, this roasting, this torturous experience that people experience for an eternity. Now, if that's true, it does make sense why we would struggle with the goodness of God in this place. But Dawkins says that this teaching is so horrific that it is actually akin to physical abuse to children if you're going to teach them it. It seems to me that that telling children such that they really, really believe that people who sin are going to go to hell and roast forever forever that your skin grows again when it, when it peels off with, 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 with burning. It seems to me to be intuitively entirely reasonable that that is a worse form of child abuse that will give more nightmares, that will give more genuine distress because they really believe it. So, believe it's not a problem. what are we to do with this? Very interested in asking the audience if we believe in God and we want to believe in his goodness, how do we deal with the teaching of hell? And if we don't believe in God, then can we just reject him altogether as an evil character of fiction because of the teaching of hell? What do we do with hell? 
My name is Johnny Morrison, and you're listening to The People's Theology, brought to you by Missio Day in Salt Lake City, Utah. And in today's episode, and most likely the next two, we'll be having a conversation about hell, about what it is, about what it means, and about what it means specifically for God and who He is, and if we can trust Him that He is good and right and just. To help us through this conversation, we're going to be interviewing Josh Butler, the author of Skeletons in God's Closet and The Pursuing God. And he's spent a lot of his life dedicated to this subject, but not dedicated to it in a way that is abstract and removed from reality, like it's just theological abstraction, but in a way that is grounded in reality, in a way that makes sense, in a way that matters, in a way that speaks to the world that we live in, which I think is really the only way that we can understand any theological subject, but especially one about judgment. Now, there's obviously a lot to do when it comes to a conversation about hell. And so in this first episode, what we're going to do is just lay the groundwork, ask certain questions that we need to have the answer to, and give ourselves a chance to build uh, the structure for getting into this conversation well. So how do we do it? My premise is, you know, what I found in my own life is that I found that I think we often have a real caricature of what's actually going on in the biblical story. Uh, and so one of the things I want to try and do is uh, just offer some paradigm shifts that have been helpful for me over the years and just reclaiming, I think, a healthier biblical picture of what's happening in these topics. Uh, and one where ultimately we see them arising because of the goodness of God, like not in spite of it or in contradiction to it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I'm not the answer man who's got it all figured out. Kind of like I, I mentioned, you know, I'm, I'm not, I, I don't think to have it all figured out, but I have found uh, some really helpful paradigm shifts, you know, that, and a lot of it's been not by avoiding the Bible, but by diving more head on into it and not by avoiding what the church has taught historically, by diving deeper into it and really learning from how church history has approached these subjects. And, and so, but I'd say the end game for me at the end of the day, it's not necessarily, Hey, here's the right answers you can use with your friend. You know, it's, it, there is this piece of dude, yeah, hopefully we can better walk with friends and family who wrestle with these topics. But the biggest end game is that we ourselves could reclaim a greater confidence in the goodness of God, like a bold confidence. He's good all the way down through and through in his very bones and not in spite of these, these things. But even I found, man, if you can find the goodness of God blaring, blazing out at you from these places you most fear to look, I think you just become that more confident that you, God's goodness is all around everywhere you can. This is something Josh will do all throughout his book, Skeletons in God's Closet, which is confront caricatures that we have both about God and about the biblical story. So that's what he's going to do throughout the entire book and throughout a lot of this conversation. And that's the first goal, is to confront the caricatures that we have. 
But another thing that we need to do is to see this conversation in context to reality and not remove from it like it's just some abstract conversation. It's funny because I, I do think also the first book, Skeletons of God's Closet, uh, the subtitle uh, is The Mercy of Hell, The Surprise of Judgment, The Hope of Holy War. Kind of going, I don't, I don't think mercy, surprise, and hope are how most people think about those. Uh, but I want to argue it's they're central when we kind of frame uh, them back, these topics back in the biblical story. Those are central characteristics. Um, but one of the things that I think is unique, a lot of people have said feels unique is often when people talk about topics like that, they tend to talk about them very much in the abstract, you know, and, and for me, these, uh, you see threaded throughout the book, it's been working overseas with uh, kids who've been exploited in the sex trade with uh, places that have experienced genocide and are rebuilding in the aftermath with, um, you know, like those are the kind of scenarios and then locally it's it's you know it's been through involvement in things like foster care and refugees i, I would say those are areas where i feel like dude we're encountering like the power of hell at work in our world unleashing destruction and this cry for god's judgment like uh not in the sense of just god tick and tail you know but the sense of god returning to set things right and in order for things to get set right there's some stuff that has to be dealt with and how do we uh, approach that in light of God's radical mercy and gospel. Um, things like uh, the Holy War section, you know, just going through a lot of it, recognizing that there's systemic injustice in our world. There are historical and structural things that, that have a tremendous impact on our world. And I think often in scripture, topics like these get framed with that kind of a backdrop in mind. And so we tend to separate, like, let's talk about, you know, mission in the world over here and then let's talk about tough topics like hell judgment who are kind of in the abstract over here and for me the heart you know that's kind of almost like the head and this is the heart like the heart and the 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 heart that i think is driving a proper understanding of a lot of those is grounded in uh real world experience some of the gnarliness in our world today so we need to recognize that we have certain caricatures of god and his story And we also need to recognize that there are legitimate problems in the world, that there are legitimate sufferings, legitimate injustices, and we need to see any conversation about hell or about judgment in light of those types of things. We need to see it in light of the suffering that is very real in our world and recognize that the power of hell is actually already at work in this world working overseas in a few internships and and diving into hard stuff in the world and just kind of going, man, God, how does the good news, how does the cross and the kingdom speak to and relate to some of the tragedy and trauma and crazy things going on in our world? So, uh, So for me, it was maybe without even intending it, the two were very intertwined from the get go because yeah. I would grappling with how does the cross and the kingdom and the gospel, how, how does that relate to kind of the stuff that's going on in our world today? It's simultaneously, as I was beginning to kind of process these questions that friends were bombarding me with. And so on a personal level, they always felt very integrated in my own journey. And then it was when I sort of stepped into, uh, you know, say a seminary classroom or things like that and started going, Oh, but for many today, these things were kind of divorced, you know, they're, mm-hmm. They're treated very separately. You know, we have this habit in the West of separating ideas from reality, of the ethereal metaphysical from the physical. And this habit tends to impact the way we see theology and reality. We separate those ideas as though they can be separated and like they're not grounded into one another. 
But that's a problem for us because they are meant to be intertwined. Now, I think there's two primary reasons for separating these two. It would be a little cliche, but I do think it's true. You know, in the, I think in the 1900s, there was sort of this, you know, I think historically, um, you know, the, the church was very integrated, probably with both, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in the 1900s in America, at least, I think you do have to split with uh, uh, kind of the right-wing and left-wing Christianity, one going, we're going to be about the Bible, you know, and, and truth, and the other, we're going to be about justice and caring for the poor, and you sort of have the social gospel on one side, and in um, another side, going, hey, we, we need to get back to the fundamentals of the faith and all. So I think you have this, maybe, uh, I'm just thinking off the cuff here, but I think, you know, that maybe that divide has impacted how we've approached some of the tough topics. You've got one side going, it's just about truth and truth starts to become kind of more abstract, you know, mm-hmm. and then you've got another side that's maybe ditching a lot of important things and related to the authority of Christ and scripture and all. And yet um, is in the trenches of some, some of the hard stuff in our world. And, and I don't know, most of the folks I see and I'm around today are, you know, are really, those two are integrated, you know, yeah. for folks today. Uh, but I do wonder if theologically there has been kind of a pull in the 20th century that's, you know, that, that kind of split split those two yeah. unnecessarily further apart than they needed to be. So maybe the first reason that we separate these two is Platonic dualism. We separate ideas from reality, like forms from substance. But I think there's another really important reason that we separate these two ideas, and it is that for most of our history in the West, white men have written our theologies, and white men have been close to centers of power. And so it has not been necessary to think about injustice and theology or suffering and theology. And so the primary theology textbooks or the primary ideas or the primary papers that were published that we read as the white Western church did not have a thorough theology of suffering and justice. Well, that's not true of the communities that were surrounding us, of minority communities, of African-American communities. They had thorough theologies of suffering, of justice, and even of hell. And it's probably time that we start to apprentice ourselves to them so that we can learn how to integrate these two together. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I do think, you know, there is this tendency, we always tend to read, whether it's the Bible or a movie or whatever, we always tend to watch or read or whatever, and we we tend to see ourselves in the hero spot of the story, you know, and so I think we read... Israel being delivered from Egypt and like, oh, that's me. We're, you know, and on the one hand, yes, you know, like we are, God has delivered us from sin and it's like, it's all this thing. But there's another angle where, you know, I think socioeconomically, politically, we're like going, dude, I am Egypt. <laughs> like I'm living at the heights of world power. Like I'm not a marginalized, depressed slave getting my tailgate. And so I do think there's this thread where uh, much of scripture, not all, but, but a significant thread is that it, it's, it's regularly written from the perspective of, kind of the underdog or, you know, mm-hmm. the underclass. And even those in power, like, say, I think of a David, you know, and so much of his time in the narrative, though, is being persecuted by Saul and chased out, you know. And so you, you have this regular theme in scripture of um, the narratives often been, being written by those who, you know, the perspective of those who are um, either, you know, who are not necessarily in power and often are having power used against them. Yeah. Uh, and yet... Yeah, I, I and many who write theology books say, you know, we, we tend to actually be in 
uh, places of significant privilege and power on the, the global scene. And I, I do think we have to try and be intentional about uh, stepping out of our own perspective and trying to listen to the perspective of others and grapple with how that shapes what the Bible means for us today. Totally. Now, why does it matter for a conversation about hell? Well, because you think about judgment differently if you have been subject to injustice. You think about overthrowing of powers and of a changing of world orders differently if you have been on the wrong end of those powers and world orders. So the churches around the Western white church, minority churches, African-American churches, Latino churches, have had a developed view of justice, a developed view of judgment, a developed view of hell, most likely because those things have actually been hopeful. You better run. So this is what we've seen so far. First, that we have caricatures of God and his story that need to be confronted. Caricatures that may not actually be rooted in the story, which we'll do in the next couple of episodes. But we've also seen that we have separated theology from reality. And that they need to be grounded together. And they need to be understood in context to one another. Specifically, hell... This idea of judgment needs to be understood in context of the suffering that we see around us, the worst of suffering, the worst of injustice. And finally, we've seen that part of the reason we separate these ideas is because we don't suffer injustice. And so maybe one of the reasons we don't understand hell, and maybe one of the reasons we don't like it, and maybe one of the reasons we so make it a caricature of God is because we don't suffer on the wrong end. So we don't see any need for a conversation about judgment. So that's the first part. In order to lay the groundwork for our conversation about hell, we needed to understand theology in reality and theology and reality from the perspective of those who have suffered injustice. But what comes next? What else do we need to do to lay the groundwork for this conversation about hell? There are two major themes, I would say, that convictions for me that uh, I don't talk about them explicitly in the book, but implicitly they're behind the scenes. And I would say that uh, was it the Trinity and anthropology. <laughs> you know, so uh, on the Trinity, that first one, I'm just going... <clears throat> the, you know, the core historic, one of the core historic Christian affirmations of God is that God is good through and through, that God is life, light, and love all the way down. There is nothing we can do to change God's character from being life, light, and love, that everything that God does flows out of who God is. And so even the parts that we might struggle with in scripture at times, uh, one of the core convictions uh, as I would say that God is, you know, you hear the classic phrase, God is good all the time, you know, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Isn't God? like just the, I, I think we often start with the assumption that we're good and God has some baggage, you know, there's kind of like, we have these high ethical standards, but 
God in the Old Testament is doing this and this, and God, you have the church says God does this and this. And I, I think for me, one of the starting points is going, the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit is an eternal communion of love. Like that's, that's, that's the historic Christian confession. And so uh, everything that we read in scripture, everything we would know about God as we step into engaging in our world, you know, the gospel would say that God is good through and through. Um, so that, that, that would be the first core conviction is just saying going, going into this, I want to take my confidence in who God is. And I get to grapple with scripture in light of that. Now, you might be thinking, like, that's a weird thing to say when we're having a conversation about hell and God's goodness. Like, can God be good with hell? And then you're just presupposing that God is good. And I totally get that. And I think that's a legitimate question. But what we're going to talk about in a second is that you have to understand everything that happens in the Bible within its narrative context. We've talked about context a lot. And that just means finding the thing within the larger and broader framework it finds itself in. And the Bible is a story, and is a story specifically about God. And so if we want to understand that story and understand pieces of that story, then we need to understand it in light of the entire narrative structure. And in that narrative structure, we learn over and over and over again that God is good. And so if you do believe, then come to the individual incidences with that structure, that God is good, and this moment fits into that context. Now, if you're a skeptic and you're a doubter, hold that question in tension. Because hopefully, as we continue to talk and continue to walk through this conversation, through this episode and the next, you will see that, indeed, God is good. And the other one is a much kind of anthropology, which is like humanity, a study of humans, like who we are, how we operate. And there, uh, I, I guess I'd say I've been impacted by Augustine is kind of famous for what would be called an affective anthropology, mm-hmm. uh, theology that we are creatures of the heart, uh, that we are driven not so much by what we think as by what we love, you know, uh, that we, we tend to default in our society, I think, to thinking of ourselves as rational creatures, you know, kind of creatures of the mind. We think about things and we make rational decisions, or if we don't, it's because our emotions, our hearts kind of getting in the way. So we got to suppress bad desires, you know, and, um, there's a lot of history behind this, but you know, I think the historic kind of, I think church's historic understanding of what it means to be human would say that yes, reason and rationale, those are important and all, but we are as creatures, we're driven by what we love. We, we do what we love. And, and because our loves have become corrupted, like we want the wrong things in the wrong ways at the wrong times. Like that is sort of a, would argue how much of the evil in our world has been unleashed, both personal evil as well as systemic structural evil, uh, has often come from sin, you know, like just the nature of sin and sin, not just like bad stuff we do, sin in the sense of corrupted love and affection. And so you've kind of got this, uh, that makes sense, you know, two core convictions for me going in are one is that God is sort of unassailable, unrelenting goodness, light, life, and love. And that we as humans, the, the problem is that we, uh, have sort of corrupted, darkened loves and affections. And um, the goal is kind of getting realigned with the goodness of who God is. And so again, none of that's explicit in the book, but implicitly in all of these topics, I'm I'm just trying to go, how do we understand what's happening in light of 
God's unrelenting goodness and how our kind of corrupt condition speaks into why these topics exist in the first place. If that doesn't make sense, or maybe you don't buy it, well, first of all, that's totally fine. But maybe think about it like this. Since the Bible is a story and hell is a part of that story, then we need to engage it like it is a story. So we need to understand the characters that are a part of the story. And God is one of those characters. And so we need to understand who he is and know his part of that story and know what this character is like. And we need to know who we are since we are also a part of this story. And we can't bring our own notions to it since hell is a part of God's story, not necessarily the one that we're telling. So we need to let it all be one unified narrative and treat it like that. Yeah, well, one piece, you know, one piece that a lot of folks have commented on from Skelton's is that uh, man, there's a lot of Old Testament in it, <laughs> which I, I love the Old Testament. I, I, I would say that often today, and uh, for many Christians, you know, I, I think that we we tend to be fairly unfamiliar with the Old Testament, you know, mm-hmm. kind of heavy up on the New Testament all. And <laughs> I would be of the persuasion that the, the New Testament only really makes sense as the consummation fulfillment kind of climax. So, like if you don't have the old Testament, I, I, I kind of think of it like Jesus as being like the key, but the key is kind of useless. If you don't know the lock, you know, it's like yeah. the old Testament sets up the structure or whatever, you know, the whole narrative where, um, where it, it almost may, you know, it's, it's the story that outlines the, the keyhole, so to speak, the, the lock of the narrative that Jesus fits into and completes and, and kind of opens up to the world, you know? Uh, and so I think if we don't, if we're not familiar with the Old Testament narrative, some of these, you know, so people often think, I think of, well, figure like hell and judgment is like New Testament, you know, God's going to come back and judge the world. But one of the things I, I, I try and do in the book is show, is try and reframe these topics with some of the background of Old Testament narrative and how it aligns with um, God returning as the good and righteous king who's going to establish his kingdom and deal with evil in his world and his goodness is going to set things right and that means dealing with unrepentant sin, you know, uh, because that's what's tearing his world apart to begin with. So uh, so I do think there's, uh, in my mind, there's a commitment to taking the whole of scripture and, and trying to understand how um, some of the parts we might wrestle with fit into the broader narrative. So a friend of mine, I saw use this clip. It was really funny. It was, uh, it was from the movie Mary Poppins. It was supposed to be like a trailer for Mary Poppins, but someone had taken out like just these little, basically it looked like a, like a horror film. Like someone had taken out just these little snippets from Mary Poppins, you know? And so you have this woman with the dark lake crowds descending with her black umbrella. And there's like a spooky music, oh, you know, and the kids looking out the window and screaming, ah! And like, it's just the things in the house are moving around, you know, like ghosts or like a poltergeist or something. Mary Poppins was my movie as a kid growing up. And the trailer that Josh is talking about, you can watch on YouTube under the scary... Mary, and it is quite frightening and will either ruin or improve your childhood. And anyways, the, but the, the point, you know, it was really humorous, but it's just kind of like you can pluck out all these little snippets or scenes from Mary Poppins and if you and, and rearrange them in a narrative and set some music to it that makes it look like a horror film, you know, and 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 you would go, well, yeah, you've actually got actual scenes from Mary Poppins, you know, but they're in the wrong story and that distorts 
that was making we always thinking plays. I think that's often what's happening with scripture. You know, if we with the way that we approach scripture sometimes is that we can kind of people they can kind of pluck out like what about this story, this story, and some stuff that can look a little look a little bit harsh if you just kind of have the microscope on that one scene. What you got to do, I think, is is the commitment to like zoom out and reinsert those scenes within the broader storyline they're a part of. And, yeah. and that's where I think the richer understanding and conviction really comes in to see once again, like God's goodness kind of driving the ship, of, you know, driving the scene of the, the story as a whole. So where are we? Because we haven't actually answered any of the questions that we started with. We haven't answered questions about what is hell, or how we should understand it, or where it fits into the biblical narrative even. We haven't really answered whether or not God is good, and if his goodness remains in the midst of a conversation about hell. We haven't answered any of those questions. Instead, what we have done is lay some of the necessary groundwork so that we can answer those questions. So, what the hell is going on? Well, we'll answer that question in our next episode. The People's Theology is brought to you by Missio Day Community Church in Salt Lake City, Utah. For more information about the podcast and about the church, check out our website at www.missiodayslc.com. And if you've liked this episode or any of the previous ones, would you rate us on iTunes? And more importantly, would you share it with a friend that you think has similar questions or is wrestling with similar things or wants their voice to be a part of the conversation? Thanks for listening and check back for our next episode soon.